Extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. We started this whole process with two primary goals. We established that um, in July. One was that we wanted to put everything possible in place to keep our staff and our students and our parents safe. So safety was number one. You know, um, mitigating this, this virus, mitigating this pandemic was activity number one. Goal number two was we wanted to stay in school. We did not want to keep schools closed. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangi Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high quality education, no matter what their background. Today, we're talking with Dr. Deb Gustafson, Director of Student Support Services of USD 475, Geary County, Kansas. I first met Dr. Gustafson back in 2007 when I visited Ware Elementary, where she had been principal since 2001. Ware Elementary was one of the top performing schools in Kansas when I visited, but in 2001, it had been named as the first school in Kansas to be what it was called on improvement, which meant it was one of the lowest performing schools in the state. I wrote about the improvement Dr. Gustafson led at Ware in how it's being done published by Harvard Education Press in 2009, and I have stayed in touch ever since. Regular listeners have heard Jenny Black, who for many years was assistant principal at Ware and is now principal of Washington Elementary School. The last time Ms. Black was on the podcast, she said that Dr. Gustafson is the COVID coordinator for the district, which is in Junction City, Kansas. I wanted to know what that entails, and I'm really happy to say Dr. Gustafson agreed to explain. Welcome, Dr. Gustafson. Hello, friend. So good to see and hear from you again. So, like, I try and maintain a certain formality on this podcast, but I can't call you, I can't keep calling you Dr. Gustafson. I have to call you Deb. I hope that's okay. I would be highly offended if you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> We've just known each other too long and too well. Um, so, I want to talk about the way Junction City closed down in the spring and how you plan to reopen in the fall, but let's just pull back a minute. Can you give a picture of the district? How many students are there? How many schools? How many students are fully remote and so forth? Okay, absolutely, Karen. So I'll, I'll go through a little bit of detail, and then if there's something I left out, just um, ask that specific information. We are a school district of about 7,000 students. Um, about 50% of our students are connected to the military, so they have affiliation with Fort Riley. Um, we are, um, in addition to heavy military, we're also a high poverty district. Our poverty rate's around 60, 60% district-wide, and we have some schools that the poverty rate's um, in the 90s, um, just depending upon parts of the location. Um, we have um, we are a reflection of today's military. So we have a lot of diversity. 
Um, we have a lot of um, non-English speaking students coming from a variety of locations. And we have about 1,500 staff members that we add into that mix. So um, altogether, we're about 8,500 strong. When we um, returned from remote learning that we were placed in by our governor in March, um, when we returned in, we actually started um, students in September. When our, we um, had our reentry plan approved, we started off with about 5,000 students on-site learning and about 2,000, just a little bit over 2,000 of our students that chose the fully remote option of learning. We did not offer a hybrid model. We offered either on-site or remote. And um, so that was our split out about, you know, a little bit over 2,000, a little bit under 5,000 of our students on site. Now, um, as we begin our second semester on January 22nd, we're down to about just a little bit over 1,000 students still remote. I'd say it's in between that 1,000 and 1,100. We had at least 1,000 students choose to come back on site when they saw how well we were doing and some of the challenges that are embedded in, in remote learning, um, they, they chose to come back. So we're, we're 6,000 strong on, with on-site learners at this time. Well, so are you able to do the social distancing? Um, not, not totally, absolutely not. We never, we, um, our document that we presented to the state and had approved and the document that we've been living by um, that we named the way forward. Um, we said we would socially distance whenever and wherever possible. So we we most definitely um, six feet socially distance anytime we're in an eating environment, in our lunchrooms, um, in our breakfast opportunities, those sort of things. But in the classroom learning, um, we never did claim that we would always be able to six foot socially distance all of our students. That's just um, unrealistic um, given the environments that we have. And so we do have a 100% mask requirement. So everyone is always masked. Um, students and staff are always masked. And we have a lot of other pretty rigid um, requirements that we can kind of talk about when we um, discuss the plan that we put in place for coming back. But to answer your question, no, we cannot always socially distance. So, so let, one step back, um, and then I want to really dig into, you know, sort of everything you're doing. Um, when you closed down in March, um, one of the things Jenny uh, said, Jenny Black said, was that she was actually really grateful to the governor that the governor just said, you know what, we're not coming back this year. You know, just, just plan on that. Don't, right, <laughs> just don't, don't even think about it because a lot of school districts at the very beginning were thinking, well, we'll just close down, do a deep clean, we'll be back. And that just seemed, you know, over, over, they just kept um, revising their plan week after week after week and not being very clear. And so Jenny was uh, very grateful that she just didn't have to worry about that. She could just um, focus on the remote learning in the spring. But it was very abrupt. There are a lot of teachers um, who had to learn a lot about computer programs and so forth. How did that? How did that shutdown go? 
Um, well, you're you're absolutely right on um, twofold. Um, one, it was extremely abrupt. We left for spring break. Um, we let out our district for spring break, and we actually never returned. The decision was made that week of spring break that students would not, that, you know, the governor made that decision. When she initially made the decision, it was, you know, it wasn't completely firm. We're, we're down for the year. It was kind of, we, we aren't returning until we get a handle and see where this is. And then very quickly it became, you know, we're closed for the year. And I too, um, you know, echo Jenny that I've, I've appreciated our governor's leadership throughout um, throughout this pandemic. I know um, she's been fraught with controversy, just like anyone who's taken a, a hard stand on this has throughout the nation. But I've tremendously appreciated her, her no-nonsense approach to all of this and her willingness to make the really tough decisions um, for everyone's safety. <clears throat> um, it, it was abrupt. Fortunately, Karen, we were in pretty good shape um, considering the shape we were in, isn't that a cliche that that's out there? Um, we we are a one-to-one -one district, so our students already had devices. Um, you know, we've we've been moving towards a complete one-to-one -one, um, initiative for several years, so we were in really good shape there. Um, with our educational programs, we were in pretty good shape also. Um, because we had adopted a lot of different curriculums that lend themselves to some remote learning. So you are correct that we had some um, individuals who had to kind of baptism by fire um, engage in some professional development. But we spent an entire, before we brought the students back on remote after spring break, we spent an entire week um, offering a multitude of professional development to all of our um, staff um, to prepare them for bring, bringing our students on remotely. And so, you know, I'm sure that when we were in the midst, so much has happened since that week. <laughs> I'm sure that in the middle of it, we thought we were in the middle of, you know, trauma or something. But, but you know, looking back, I really have to I really have to share that it it went pretty smoothly. I mean, it was just, we're all in this boat. You know, it's not just a few people. We're all in it together. We we all have to figure this out. Um, so staff-wise, I, I, I feel like it went well. It was when we got to the point of providing some professional development, if you will, to our parents so that they would be able to adequately assist their kiddos. You know, that got a little bit, Harrier, a little, little bit more challenging. But um, all in all, you know, the, the spring rolled out with remote the best we knew how to do. Probably looking back on it, um, the area that set us up for not as much success as I believe we probably could have had is we were all kind of in this traumatic mindset, you know, oh my gosh, we're in a pandemic. We've never lived in a pandemic before. Are we gonna survive this? What's it gonna be like? You know, our lives are changing forever, which has all been true, you know, but we, we were kind of in that um, trauma mindset. And so we afforded students and families a tremendous amount of grace um, in their remote learning, you know. Um, connect if you can connect stay connected as long as you can connect, 
teachers, as long as you present, you know, a portion of the day, that's okay. You know, everybody's not expected to be connected 24 seven. You know, we just had a lot of um, grace offered a lot of um, flexible opportunities for learning, because we just didn't know what what this was going to be like, you know, down the road. So we rolled out the rest of March, April and May in that mindset. And honestly, um, I think some of that came back to be a real challenge for us when we tried to kick school back up again in September because people had developed some, some habits of learning remotely that we had to change. And, you know, change is difficult. So maybe if we had started off a little bit um, more rigid in our expectations, that change process wouldn't have been so difficult in the fall. So talk about the preparations you made over the summer to reopen in the in the fall because I think that that was a key time. you you worked really hard. Absolutely. Yeah, um, there aren't any um, administra- school administrators that had any break in the in the summer of 2020 that were prepared to open their schools back up. I'll tell you that it was a day long, every day long hours, um, you know, throughout June and July to try to get ready for August, and then to find out we weren't quite ready in August, and to spend some more, you know, hours before we were able to open the. Um, Our state of Kansas, our Kansas State Department of Education rolled out a document kind of outlining what their expectations were for education moving forward in a pandemic. And that document didn't come out until the middle of July. So we knew that we would have to adhere to the guidelines presented in that document, but we also knew that we couldn't really wait for that document to roll out, to really put all of the the fine-tuned details that you needed in a a guideline for reopening schools. So we kind of worked ahead of the document coming out. And then fortunately, once it did come out, it had enough flexibility in it for individual school boards boards of education and individual school districts to kind of make some of their own decisions um, within the governor's and the um, Kansas Department of Education's guidelines. So we presented our um, document and it was um, heavily laden with, um, with specific expectations that we would have for every school And then every school in turn would be expected to write. And and this is why we weren't able to open until um, the very first of September, because we had to afford the individual schools time to write their individual re-entry plans in August that were based on the district-wide guidelines that went along with the state's guidelines that were presented by the end end of um, July. But Karen, we started, um, we started this whole process with two primary goals. Um, we we established, established that um, in July. One was that we wanted to put everything possible in place to keep our staff and our students and our parents safe. So safety was number one, you know, um, mitigating this, this virus, mitigating this pandemic was was activity number one. Activity number two was, or goal number two was, we wanted to stay in school. We did not want to keep schools closed. We had enough experience in the spring 
to demonstrate to us that there's a high number of our population that need to be in school. They need to be in school for their um, physical safety. They need to be in school for their mental health. They need to be in school to learn. There's a certain number of our population that do not have the, the environment at home that is conducive to them learning. Um, and so we knew we needed those individuals in school. And so our second goal was we want to do everything possible to keep our kids in school. And so our plans were written in that vein that we're not, we're not putting in our plans what's going to happen if we have to go remote, although we had those plans. If, if, you know, it, you know, we were all working in the blind, nobody knew exactly what this is going to be like. So we definitely had plans, but I think, um, I think what's always been in the back of my mind, most definitely. And I think the whole leadership team was, um, <laughs> we're going to manage COVID so that COVID doesn't manage us. Brave words, bravely spoken. How has that gone? Uh, in other words, uh, Geary County has had spikes along the way, um, uh, which is where uh, your county. Um, how ha how have you managed, or have you managed? Okay, um, and we'll go back and talk a little bit just for your listeners of what's actually in some of those plans, so that you know to help others. But to answer that question, Karen. I feel like we've been extremely successful. I, I feel very, very good here in the middle of February. Um, you know, we are, um, by by measurement of, of where you live, we're not necessarily a large school district, but we are in Kansas. Um, having 7,000 students in our school district um, classifies us in the category of the highest a 6A school district. So we we are large school districts for Kansas. And we are one of the only 6A school districts in the state of Kansas that have stayed open and not, that have stayed open to on-site learning all year. We had a small period of time in around Thanksgiving to Christmas that we did have our high school go remote, um, just the high school for a for a short period of time due to some clusters um, that, that we had that we needed to get a handle on. Other than that, our preschool through eighth grade have been on site all year. And we've been, um, what I believe, pretty, pretty successful in managing on all of that. When you talk about what it takes to keep school open and, and why we've, we've been successful, um, I kind of look at it as a three-prong approach. One was those plans that every single school has to stay open. Our, our teachers, our administrators, our support staff, our kids have been absolute rock stars in adhering to the mitigation procedures that were put in place in those in those reentry plans. And we can talk about, you know, what, what some of those plans look like. But the administrators have been pretty relentless in the expectations so that they could keep schools open. And everybody has just fallen fallen suit. We have not had, we have not had challenges 
with our staff and our students adhering to our safety mitigation procedures. So the reentry plans were key and, and that's one prong. The second piece of it that we have been diligent with and I believe is a huge part of our success has been our willingness as a district to take on the contact tracing processes and to work in tandem with our very, very small local county health department that's significantly understaffed <laughs> to handle a pandemic like they are all across the nation. And so we have really taken on that role in our school district with um, contact tracing and quarantine issuing and tracking all of that, doing all of the tracking for that. Now that has not been without controversy. Um, a lot of our parents, a lot of our, not a lot of our staff, but a, a certain number of our staff um, have not believed that we needed to be in the contact tracing business and that, that that should all be left to the health officials. And it became so incredibly clear to me early on that if we really if we really had the philosophy, we're gonna control COVID instead of COVID controlling us, then we were gonna to have to be a real active partner in the contact tracing and the quarantining, or it, it, it just was going to be too much for our health department to handle and it just wouldn't end up being done. And that was very true because at one point, our health department had to just um, hand over the contact tracing um, to our state department of health and environment. Um, like many of our health departments did. And once it got turned over to the state um, health and environment department, then, you know, it, there's definitely a lag in, in how fast things happen. With us doing our own contact tracing and, and issuing in tandem with the health department, the quarantine orders, it's immediate. So just to describe to you what that looks like, I'll just give you a couple of examples of what that looks like. So it's a Friday night in late September. I think it was late September. It's a Friday night and I get a phone call because all things COVID come through me. And by the way, COVID isn't, doesn't go by school hours. COVID is 24 seven. So I'm, I'm on the phone 24 seven. I work COVID every weekend, every holiday, every evening, 24 seven in the school district. I get a phone call on a Friday night. I had just gotten home, um, was not going to the football game, was planning on listening to the football game on the radio, it'd been a week. And um, I get a call that one of the um, dance team members of the football team, because we're still having sports, we're still having activities. They all look very, very, very different than they've ever looked before. But we're doing everything possible to give kids a normal as possible school year. And being on the dance team and performing on the football team is one of those activities that that we're, we still do. And um, got a phone call that one of the dance team members um, tested positive, um, hadn't been feeling very well, went to the doctor, ended up testing positive. So this is what contact tracing in a school district looks like. At the dance team was lined up at the end of the field, ready to perform in 20 minutes. I get a hold of the athletic director for the high school and the dance team gets pulled off the field and everybody gets sent home and quarantined for 14 days. 
So that's how quickly we can move um, when we are willing to take on that role in the school district. If we had waited for the Kansas Department of Health and Environment, we would not have even found out that that dance team member was positive if we had waited on word from them for probably three or four days at best. And by then, all of our um, dance team members would have been exposed. All of the other students in the class would have been exposed. So that that's one example. Well, I'll can I just, just keep on this example for a second? Absolutely. So where did she pick it up? I mean, the whole thought about contact tracing is you, you then say, okay, where did you, you know, who were you in touch with? She, she was clearly in touch with her dance team members, but who else, you know, where did she bring it in from? Okay, so first of all, um, and, and I know this is going to sound a little harsh, but and I don't really mean it to, but I'm just being as honest and transparent as possible. We don't, um, when we work the contact tracing angle from the school, we, we interview the person and we find out who all they've come in contact with and anyone that is school related, we, um, with the health department issue quarantine. Anybody personally that that individual has been around, the health department handles. So the health department will have an interview with that positive case also, and they will handle any quarantines of anyone. Of in a that, grandmother in or that individuals. Yeah. yeah, all of those. We do not contact trace on the personal end. We just do in school. And, and this is the part that I don't mean to sound harsh, but it's just the reality. I don't expend any time and energy whatsoever trying to figure out where anybody got COVID. Because that is a completely that is a complete waste of time to try to figure out where you contacted COVID, um, and and so I don't I never I just find out who all you've been around and make sure school wise teachers staff students that those individuals are all doing their their necessary quarantining to stop the spread, and and I will tell you that we, um, you know, I track all my numbers every single week. I track all my positives, all my quarantines, both staff and students. They're all tracked every single week. Um, I look for my clusters. I react to the clusters. I feel very strongly, and I think all of our staff will tell you that our spreads are not from school. You know what? We've heard that before that when students have them, it's not because they're spreading at school and that they are, uh, it's an elsewhere thing. And then the degree to which it can be stopped in the building is also the mitigating factor, um, which is very interesting to hear you say that. Tanti, that's absolutely true. Um, we, we have a lot of evidence to point to that. You know, um, we know that it spreads through families you know, we know that because we have all the kids in the family that all end up positive, you know, in multiple schools and the parent was the first and then it, you know, runs through the kids. So um, we have we have a tremendous amount of data here and we could talk for, you know, the rest of the week on some of the amazing things that the data tells you. Um, you know, COVID definitely is spread more through 
um, our secondary students than our elementary students, just by the nature of their activities. They're a lot more social beings. They're still hanging out with each other on the weekends and after school and that sort of thing, and not necessarily adhering to all of their safety measures, you know, of wearing masks and all that. So there's there's definitely a lot more spread among our secondary students. Our, our elementary students don't have quite as big a social lives as our secondary students. Um, and we just, we don't see as much spread. However, when we really look at our numbers um, for the, here I could give you some kind of interesting, here's another chart, Karen, you might like, do you want to take a picture of that one? I always love charts. Yeah, I know you do. So, and you know, I keep them because they, every chart tells a story, right? We love our data and I've got all kinds of COVID data, more COVID data than anybody would want. But just to kind of give you an example here, um, our two big months of, of COVID spread were November and December. Like um, everyone else. Really, yep. Yeah, we looked really, really good. Um, and when you look at our, our positives versus students and staff, it's about equal. And when you look at elementary versus secondary, it's it's pretty similar. So it's a little bit higher secondary, both secondary staff and secondary students. But all in all, just to give you a picture, adding students and staff together in a district of 8,500 strong, um, 7,000 kids. And our remote kids are in this too, because guess what? Remote kids get COVID too. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we had quite a bit of spread on our remote kids that weren't even coming on site in the building with COVID. So um, when, you, <clears throat> when you look at that all together, we had 89 cases in November and 89 cases in December. <laughs> they were both, it just ironically ended up exactly the same. So when you look at a, a, um, an overall number of 8,500 people, and we had 89 cases in each one of those months. I think that lends, and those were our highest months. Um, we were 57 in January. We were 26 in September and 23 in October. So I think when you just look at those numbers, I think that it speaks highly to how effectively we've been able to manage and, and mitigate this whole process. So I wanna talk about the, the mitigation processes, but um, I'm curious, if there's a distinction between who's sending their kids to school and who's not. So nationally, um, what we're seeing is that in general, white parents are sending their kids to, to in-person more than black and Latino parents. Are you seeing that or not? Absolutely. Um, I, um, I, I take the district phone calls from parents, you know, and I spent a lot of time on the phone in September um, trying to convince parents to, to try, you know, our, our um, safety measures. What I found was um, exactly what you have just spoken to bore out in our district, absolutely. Our, um, our high poverty families were more reluctant to send their kids back. And it did fall more within um, our, our black population and our Hispanic population. However, I felt that part of the reason for that was that um, we have many of our, um, our black families have elderly 
family members residing within the family. There's, there's in some of those families, there's still some of the larger family units that used to be so traditional many years ago that we don't see now where, you know, grandma comes back to live with the family or intergenerational families. Absolutely. And, and we see that here. And so that was some of their reluctancy. It, It, is that we can't let the kids go to school because they will bring COVID home to grandma or grandpa or auntie. So we had a lot of that. And then in our Hispanic families, we have a lot of families um, cohabitating. There's, you know, two or three families in the household. And so that was another reason there is there's just so many people living in this household that we can't, you know, we can't risk spread coming through our household. So I felt like those two factors had a lot in the, in the conversations that I had with people, those were, those were the issues that were raised to me that, that I tried to help them resolve. But we definitely, Karen would reflect that national trend. However, we've brought half of them back to school. So we, we want to celebrate that. Our, our goal is to get our kids back in school because we absolutely believe it's the safest place to be. We believe our schools are safer than grocery stores and parks and churches and many of the other places that, that kids go. Because of the measures you're taking. So now, like, let's talk the measures. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I'll forget some because I told you I didn't prepare for this. I wanted it raw and natural, so I didn't I, prepare. I just want to let listeners know it's calving season, and Deb also <laughs> runs a, you know, helps run a ranch, and so she's up at night uh, helping heifers give birth to calves, and then putting them in her kitchen and stuff. So she, she, there's, there's a lot going on with. <laughs> it's a true story. So this 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 was um, thank goodness Karen um, reminded me last night. Hey, remember you're on a podcast. <laughs> that was that was a very good move on your part, Karen. I don't know if we'd be talking this morning. Anyway, so I will forget some of these some of these mitigation factors. But number one is we we asked our principals to look at every single aspect of their building walk through a teacher's day, walk through a student's day, and look at every single event activity that we have, and how can we make that activity the safest possible. So one of the first things that we did is we did temperature checking at all of our doors. Um, Before students would come in, they would have their temperatures taken. Um, And so we also had to eliminate um, we, we used to have students all funnel into one door um, for safety purposes, the whole, you know, school safety shooter type of thing. You only use one or two entrances. Well, we had to abandon that and go back to utilizing every single door possible because we didn't want students congregating. So we had to open up every single door and we had to have a temperature checking. Um, I think we ordered 700 thermometers anyway. Um, We had to do temperature checking at every one of those doors. I will tell you that based upon CDC guidance, we abandoned the temperature taking um, at second semester because we did not find it to be beneficial at all. Um, None of our positives had high temperatures and none of our high temperatures were positive. So that that data bore out to not be a very useful activity, but we did it for a whole semester. Um, then as students entered the building, we did have to socially distance. 
So we had to look at the whole difference in how students walked in lines, where they waited in the morning before they went to class, all of those things we required socially distancing. Of course, the mask were absolutely required at all times other than eating. And did you um, provide we, the masks? How did that no, work? No, we did We did not. We asked parents to provide um, their own mask, and then we did have them for students who, who didn't have, and, and that's still what we're doing. Um, we still ask parents to provide the mask, but we have um, a plentiful plentiful supply for any kiddos who show up to school without a mask. There's There's never a reason not to have a mask on. So um, some of the other things, um, we do not allow any outsiders in our building. So we don't allow parents in our building. Um, all of our parent meetings have to be by Zoom or Skype, unless it's an absolute emergency. Uh, you know, something has happened to a child and the parent needs to come in and, you know, tend to their child. We, you know, we're not so rigid that we don't have exceptions, but on the rule, we don't have, we don't have anyone from the outside. We don't bring in any assemblies. Um, you know, we don't bring in any visitors. For the first semester, we didn't even have student teachers or university supporters coming into our schools. We have opened that up um, for second semester with some real mitigation processes. You know, with our littles, our, our preschools and our elementary kiddos, um, a lot of them eat their breakfast in the classrooms. They all face the same direction. When we are in the breakfast room, in the lunch room, we all face the same direction. So we could only let half as many kids into the breakfast room and the lunch room. I tell you what that looks like at high school is, um, is crazy. We have high school kids eating all over the building so that they can socially distance um, while they're eating. So they're eating in both gymnasiums um, that we have at the high school. By the way, we're building a brand new high school. It is rocking. It's so exciting. It's going to be open in August. You need to come back and see it. But anyway, so in our old high school, we're all over the place eating um, every every space that we can utilize so that students can socially distance while they are eating. So that was um, a safety measure. There was a number of um, operational safety measures that I'm not all that great at describing, but we had this static electrical cleaning process that our operations, so they come in in the evenings and they do this um, electrical um, static sanitizing that you'd need somebody more knowledgeable to explain to you exactly what that is. I just know it happens every night because your papers roll all up after they've, after they've been through it and, and do that. Is that we for the air or for surfaces? It's surfaces. And then for the air, we have a process through our HVAC system in each one of our buildings where they push all the air out and bring new fresh air in, um, two, three times a day. So the temperature always drops for a while now that it's cold in those buildings and, and then goes back up. We require hand sanitizing every hour. So every hour throughout the day, students are asked if, if they have access to wash their hands, um, otherwise to use hand sanitizer. Um, we removed all of the um, cloth, furniture, and anything, you know, back at the beginning. That was one of those things that I really don't think anybody's getting COVID from the furniture. I, I really don't. But that's one of those things that we didn't know in the beginning, you know, so we removed all of the, all of the cloth um, furniture. 
Um, one of the really big things we did was we put all of our kids um, elementary through high school in a cohort group. So you're with a specific group of kids and that's pretty much the group of kids that you stay with. And that was for contact tracing purposes. Um, now we have opened that up a little bit in secondary, you know, with when kids need to go to, you know, some of the specials, the choir and the, you know, the drama and all of that, they're going to be in a little bit different cohort with that group, but we still, for the most part, are, are managing in cohorts. We hired extra um, cleaning personnel and we assigned an individual to every building to assist with sanitizing throughout the day while people are in the building. So that was additional custodial personnel. We also hired a nurse or a um, nurse clerk in every one of our buildings. Prior to this year, we shared nurses among buildings, um, but we felt that in the pandemic, it was really, really important for us to have a, a health individual on staff in every building, and that's been extremely um, beneficial. We took away the opportunity for students to congregate. So where pa so passing periods look much different, there's um, more passing periods based upon your cohort. You travel in your cohort rather than the whole school having a passing period at once. Um, there's kind of places where you walk and how you walk in all of the halls and the transition periods. And then with our athletics, there's just a, a multitude of safety measures that we've put in place um, athletic wise. I mean, sports, sports are happening. Sports have been happening all year. Our football team went to state um, this year and didn't have to miss any. They had to miss some of their games because other schools weren't playing, but they didn't have to miss any games because we weren't playing. But there's, um, you know, all the athletic equipment is sanitized and there's somebody assigned to that, you know, after every single use. There's no communal water systems used anywhere. Um, all, the, all the water faucets are turned off throughout the entire district. So there's no, you know, transmission. Um, students use their own personal water bottles and we have filling, we, we put filling stations in, in the schools so that they wouldn't, you know, be using the, uh, the fountains. Um, like locker room usage and all of that, um, very staggered. Um, you know, no one has a locker right next to another person. We had to stagger all of that for, and we only opened up any locker use second semester. For the first semester, everybody carried their own materials with them, just brought what you needed for that day and you carried it with them. Um, and, and primarily not because we thought anybody was going to get COVID from lockers, but it's a congregating activity. Right. I mean, you know, we all it's can the, remember back to you can wait to water get to you. Yeah, one of them. Yeah. So we really worked hard in um, in all of our um, processes to physical distance everywhere that we possibly could to do one way traffic flows students all facing the same direction whenever possible, staggering schedules, um, not letting in visitors, utilizing, you know, when the weather was nice, we use, utilized a lot of outdoor activities and outdoor spaces. We obviously can't do that right now while we're in the six below zero tundra that we're in right now. But we, we tried to be smart 
about it. We just tried to look at every single aspect of our day and how can we keep things clean? How can we keep students sanitized as much as possible? And how can we just be smart? Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little side effect of COVID that might lend itself to a whole other podcast is many of the safety mitigation measures that have been put in place to keep us in school have also significantly reduced our discipline referrals. I was going to ask a question about that. You know, when you, particularly when you talked about masks, um, how is it, what's happening if students, is there a policy in place that might, you know, sort of unfortunately get kids into trouble if they're consistently not keeping their masks on their face? Is that, is that creating an issue in that area? But I'd love to hear about that. I would imagine the, the, since kids can't congregate at the, you know, at their equivalent of the office water fountain, that there's a lot less of the tension that comes to school from communities. So that's a really interesting dynamic to talk about that. That was one thing I wanted to ask you about. The other thing I was wondering about, you know, the hiring of nurses and nurse clerks, the installing the water filling stations. It seems like some of this has a cost implication. Um, So I'd love to know about the cost implications, but first really interested in the discipline. Okay. Because that's a big deal. (laughs) So, so we'll tackle that one first. So um, Tanji, I don't think any of us went into this process of, um, you know, not allowing students to congregate and wearing masks and all of that, looking for the discipline to be a byproduct of it. I don't even think that was on everybody's mind. I think it's just something that, that naturally arose, you know, from it. And now we're like, can we continue doing this after the (laughs) pandemic slows down? I cannot tell you how many times principals have said, hey, we don't want to go back to our previous practices. This This Mm. lends itself to a much more structured, um, more obedient, if you will, flow and process of of educating kids. So um, we, to to answer your one question about um, discipline measures, if if an individual chooses not to um, adhere to our safety safety measures, Um, I'm in, part of my role in the district is to handle discipline and and structures. And Dr. Eggleston, our superintendent last year asked us, he charged charged me and a team with writing a new code of conduct that had um, just really outlined all of the infractions that, that may occur over the school year and then what some natural consequences would be to those infractions. And so when we moved into this year with the whole mask, you know, it's, it's funny that that was, you know, a big controversy thing in August and now no one even questions whether you would wear a mask or not. Um, you know, we really had to think about, okay, is there going to be a whole separate section in the code of conduct for COVID, you know, refusal to wear mask, this happens, um, refusal to socially distance, this happens, you know, all of that. And I just, kind of made the decision as as I looked at that, that no, that's just going to fall under the expectations that you would have, just like you expect students not to put their hands on each other. I mean, it's just going to be the regular, if a, if this is the expectation of the building, 
then that's the expectation that you will have. And any insubordination or defiance of any other rules will be handled the same as this. So that's how it's handled. If a, if a student blatantly refuses to wear their mask, then it's handled just like it would be handled if they blatantly refuse to sit down in class or bring their materials to class or keep their hands off of another student or follow any other rule that the school had. It's, it's handled the same way. Um, again, we, we do have a mass exemption policy for, um, you know, individuals with health issues or health needs or social and emotional needs that, you know, the mask poses problems to. We do have a, an exemption. And I think district-wide out of, out of the 6,000 kids that we have in school right now, we may have seven. I think, I think we've got seven exemptions, so it's not significant. Um, but we do, um, we handle those, again, just like any other discipline infraction, and they're not really big deals. Most of that is handled by peer pressure. Um, mo the most part, if kids are wearing their mask below their nose or on their chin or trying to get creative, you know, for the most part, um, kids handle that with each other. Hey, dude, you know, put your mask up. We need to stay in school. Put your mask up. Now, we did have a little bit of a challenge with our adults at oh, the beginning so of the year. So surprising. Yeah. <laughs> so surprising. Yes. So, um, and we had to handle that, you know, again, not with, you know, new rules or new procedural referrals, just with the ones we already had in place. Here's an expectation. If you refuse to do this, it's insubordination and it'll be handled as such. So you mean staff members were refusing to wear masks? They were not necessarily refusing to wear them they did not always wear them appropriately in the beginning so below the they pretend war they pretend they war. pretend they war the <laughs> or you know if they were in um if they were in a different setting in the school the mask would come off or if there was only you know it was just a study hall with four or five kids the mask would come off those sort of things it wasn't that they were teaching and blatantly refusing to wear their mask it was getting relaxed in certain circumstances but we just can't do that we you know do you want to stay in school is the question it, do you want to stay in school is the question and when you are in your classroom and you are the only one in there and the door is shut you can take your mask off if you are in an office, like I'm in my office right now, the door is shut and I'm in here alone, I don't, I don't wear my mask. But as soon as someone walks in the door, I put my mask on. As soon as I walk out, I put my mask on. Do you have ventilators also in addition to the to the changing of the air? No. Just, not or, just or air filters, is, I guess, is what I meant. Air filters, yes. Just, but it's all the normal air, air filters that come in our HVAC systems. You don't have separate, it wasn't anything. no separate machines. Has there been a, 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 a cost increase to the mitigation processes you've all put in place? And how have you sort of, how have they redirected funds 
to really ensure. I think that's kind of what a lot of particularly larger districts across the country are really concerning themselves with. We need to do the same kinds of things that they're probably hearing about what you all are doing out there in Junction City. But their big concern is because of their sheer size, the cost of things like potentially getting more nurses or nurse clerks and, you know, those other kind of cost measures. So I wonder you know, how can, can you speak to some of that? And maybe were they new funds? Did you use some, you know, funding from the government? Did you redirect funds? How did you all work through that piece of it? So I'm not the financial person and I'm probably the last person anybody in the district would want to be speaking about finance <laughs> because I just tell them what we need and expect them to get it. And I don't worry about where it comes from. Just give me but, my stuff. <laughs> but, but the answer to your question is yes, yes, and yes. Um, I do know that we used a, um, that we received government sparks funds, um, government specific COVID funds that have been afforded to schools. We used the maximum amount that we could of those for some of these um, mitigation measures. And I do know that the federal government has asked you to track very specifically any um, increased costs that you have had um, due to COVID based upon the safety mitigation measures that you've put in place and the things that you've done. And so we were, you know, we've been able to, I do know that everything that, that the funds that we have received have not matched <laughs> the, um, need. The, the cost yeah. that we have had. Mm -hmm. I do know That's that, right. That's but right. I do know that there's also opportunity for more of those funds to continue coming through. So it might, you know, balance out at some point, but I kind of doubt it. The other piece was, um, that opened up some funds is having a, you know, a good percentage of our students being remote. We didn't need quite as many um, support staff. You know, we didn't need quite as many personnel in the building um, that you would have, you know, we didn't with only half as many students in the lunchroom, you didn't need quite as many lunchroom aides, you know, you didn't with many of your, um, your, students not being in the halls all the time, you didn't need as many hall monitors. So we were able to reduce some of the, not very much, but a little bit of the support staff because like paraprofessionals still had to be on board because even with our remote students, they had to service those remote students, you know, remotely. But there was a little bit of, you know, as in any organization, your your largest overhead is your human resource, you know, your personnel. And we were able to save a little bit there that um, to redirect some funds. And then the other piece of it is um, it's just been the priority this year. Again, our goal is to stay in school. Our goal is to keep our kids in school. So if that meant we weren't going to purchase as many, you know, curriculum materials here or there or um, you know, I can think of one example where some capital outlay funds were to build a new cafetorium in one building and that got put on hold, you know, anything that we, any funds that we could use for the things that we needed to do, we did. So it was just kind of a reallocation of the funds that we had, a utilization of the new funds, and looking anywhere that we could cut and we could um, save so that we could do the things that we needed to do to stay in school. So one of the things that I've said in, you know, in the last couple of months when this debate has become really heated about can we open schools, schools need to reopen, schools need to reopen, is 
it can be done, but it takes a huge amount of work and it takes real leadership and it takes trust. And the, I mean, the trust comes from the leaders really taking seriously the safety of everyone. Um, it seems to me you're kind of demonstrating that. I don't know that that exists everywhere. Um, and, and I mean, one of, one of the worries I've had with this podcast right along is I'm talking to some of what I consider to be the most effective, most um, successful leaders in the country. And listening to you, you go, oh, yeah, well, that's, that all makes so much sense. And yet I know if we went to other districts in Kansas or, other, or anywhere, any state, name the state, um, you wouldn't have the kind of detailed level of knowledge and commitment to the safety of everybody. I, there's not really a question there. I don't know what the question is. Like, what's the answer to that? How do we get to the place where we have the kinds of relationships that people can say, oh, well, I know the school will watch out for my kids. You know, instead of, I, I don't think so. You know, those are, those are two very... Um, valid reactions from parents and kids and teachers. You know, uh, I know I know Deb will watch out for my safety. The teachers can say, or you know, in a, in another district, mm, I, you know, there's nobody really watching out for me. I'm I'm responsible for everything. I, I absolutely know what you're talking about, Karen, and and it hasn't been perfect here. By any, by any stretch of the means. I mean, I've been in some incredibly courageous conversations with teachers back in August who, you know, who I have the utmost respect for and, and um, great relationships with that were scared to death to come back to school. And I mean, you know, we had, you know, we had some pretty contentious conversations about it because I felt I felt it was the right thing to do and they didn't feel it was the right thing to do. I mean, we're, we're no different than across America. I do think that one of the things that was just critical was when we had each individual building write their own re-entry plan with complete disclosure and transparency of what they were going to be able to do and what they wouldn't be able to do. I mean, you know, when it said in those plans, you know, we will socially distance in the halls, we will socially distance in the lunchroom, this is where your kid will eat, this is how your kid will, your kid won't sing in music, they'll play instruments, and but they won't sing, you know, when, when they put all of these real detailed, specific measures in this plan, and, and that plan was posted, you know, on their websites and pushed out to all of their parents, you know, through email and all of that. I think the people that took the time to look through that and, and read it thought, well, they're, they're at least really, really trying. They're not just saying, come back to school. It's going to be like it always has before. It's going to look and feel very, very different. 
And so I think we had that certain percentage of our population that looked at those plans, looked at the district plan that we rolled out. Again, that's why we didn't come back to school in August. We wanted to give everybody time in August to really delve into those plans and, and schools to revise them as questions came up and things came up. We went through three revisions of the plans after they got rolled out before they were the plan in place that we were starting school. I think that when people saw we were really trying, that we were going to contact Trace and we were going to ask people who had been exposed to a positive not to come to school, which is so foreign. If there's anything that has just been difficult for me this year, Karen knows through her historical lens of watching me operate in schools, one of the things that I am just absolute stickler on is attendance. I mean, that that's how I got results out of my high poverty schools was through getting kids to school where we can teach them. So here, that's how I've always felt. And now I'm telling parents, um, I know your child is perfectly healthy and not sick in any way, shape or form, but would you please keep them home for the next 14 days? I mean, that was so foreign to what I was about, but I could also do that with a lot of confidence because then we just put that student on another platform of learning for those 14, those 10 days, it's now 10 days, it was 14 days, we put them on another platform of learning and their learning continued. So it wasn't like we were just sending them home. But I do think that when parents really saw that we were serious about what we were going to attempt to do to open our doors, they either one, decided to give it a chance and they brought their kids back to school. And I think they felt really positive about what's happened in the last six months, or they said, well, I see they're trying, but I'm not going to be the guinea pig. I'm going to keep my kid at home and I'm going to see what happens. And then they saw their neighbors, kids and everybody else trucking off to school and staying healthy and reporting good things about school and having good experiences. And I think that's why we brought over a thousand of them back. And I think that that speaks to when Karen talked about, you know, how did you build trust? I think that was the trust building in the in the those that were extremely more paranoid or concerned about it. That's how we built trust in that population. The other larger population just chose to read those safety measures and say, well, they've definitely been thinking about this. They've, you know, they've put a lot of thought in it. There's a lot of things in place. It's not going to be school as usual. They're not even going to let me step in the door. You know, every parent-teacher conferences are Zoom. Parent orientation is Zoom. You know, drop-off procedures are different. I'm watching them take temperatures. You know, everybody's in a mask that walks in that building. I think when they started seeing how different school really looked, they said, all right, let, let's roll. Let's do it. Let's try mm -hmm. it. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's important. I think that's the that's the crux of what parents, particularly parents of young kids, are really trying to figure out. You know, when they when they make their decisions, are you doing what you say you're going to do? And the level of transparency down to, you know, going to the men's room or the girls' room, you know, the boys' or girls' room, those kinds of real nitty gritty, fine tuned 
operational aspects of school. Oh, mm-hmm. I will get phone calls from parents mm-hmm. and they will <laughs> say, sure. I mean, I'll, I, you know, and they will say, <laughs> I pulled up to the elementary school and there was this lady and this is what she was wearing and this is what she looked like. And when she walked out of that school, she didn't have her mask on. <laughs> I mean, you know, I get, I get clear down, down to that and we investigate them all, you know, I mean, Another part of your question, Karen, though, is so, yes, the planning, the preparation and the planning to reopen schools is incredible. And the um, managing it, the managing the implementation is incredible. Um, You know, I and I understand the districts are saying we don't have anybody to do this. You know, we, we don't, we're, we're taxed, you know, we're, we're at the limit. The reality is I have a full-time job um, as executive director of student services, you know, um, title one discipline attendance. I mean, all these umbrellas that fall under this role. And the reality is a lot of things kind of had to be pushed aside a little bit this year to do this work. You, you know, I did what had to be done in discipline, what had to be done in Title I, what had to be done with at-risk plans and funding. I got through what had to be implemented to, to get it going. But I had a lot of things on my list that were supposed to get done this year. You know, we were, we were looking at just some other initiatives that were on our plate that at this point in the year, I thought would be fully implemented and down the road and we would be trying. And COVID took its place. COVID measures took its place. But again, do we want, you know, and in that respect, COVID is managing us. You know, when I say, are we going to manage COVID or is COVID going to manage us? And in that respect, COVID is managing us a little bit. But if we don't do it, we don't stay open. And that was the goal. Well, this was an amazing conversation. Um, do you feel like kids are learning? Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like kids are learning. Um, again, I, I kind of feel like some of these mitigation measures are creating an environment where kids can learn more, better. There's not as many distractions to their day as, as typical you know, when, when you have reduced some of the assemblies and field trips, nobody's going on any field trips because, no, you know, no one will let them come. And I love all those things. That's all part of school. And I can't wait for those things to, to be back, you know, in opportunities. Um, you know, but when you do remove those things, there's a lot more time for direct instruction I mean, when you look at our schedules, we had to change all of our schedules because, you know, we're, we're notorious for fragmented schedules and sending people all over the place and all kinds of transition periods. And we had to remove all of those. We had to really eliminate as many transition periods as possible and keep kids in the classrooms with, with teachers. Um, and I think it's lend itself to more direct instruction time, more of a focus on instruction then, you know, we haven't been able to have parties in classrooms. People can't bring food in and celebrate, you know, different things. It's just, I don't, I'm not saying I like all those things, but when Karen poses the question, are kids learning? I absolutely believe kids are learning. 
Are they learning remotely also? Mm, wasn't I don't want to answer that question. I um I think we have the best. Well, I can't say that. I think we have a strong, rigorous expectations in our remote learning. And we have some really good qualified teachers teaching in our remote classes. And I think it lends itself well to a, a certain small percentage of the population. And I think those kids are doing okay. Um, I'm really uncomfortable with, I, I will not go on record saying that all of our kids who are in remote learning are learning. I'm, I'm very worried that that is my biggest COVID worry. I am much more worried at this point in our, in our ball game. I'm not worried about COVID, our kids and COVID, our teachers and COVID. I, I'm just not worried about that. I mean, we've, we have, we've gotten COVID, we've survived COVID. We're, you know, I, I don't worry so much about COVID. I do absolutely worry about the students who are remote still. Um, the COVID slide. The slide. Thank you for saying slide. I appreciate yeah, that COVID language slide. much better than the other language that you could have used. Um, is it is it because of their attendance that causes you pause? Is it that they're just not engaged at the same level? Is it the quality of the work? What might it be? You keep asking those yes, yes, yes answers questions. <laughs> yes, all trying of, to make it easy for yeah, you. Yeah, all of, can trying I pick, to make it easy. <laughs> I want to select all of the above. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, engagement is is definitely one of the concerns. You know, we had to change the rules of engagement, if you will. You know, right after the first quarter of school, things like you have to have your camera on. You know, when you're remote, you have to attend each remote session. You know, we had to put some real um, quality assurances in place to try to beef up. And again, at the very beginning of our conversation, I talked about some of the grace that was afforded back in the spring. I feel like as we delved into this, this full year of school, we had people taking a lot of advantages of that. You know, if the kid wants to get on, if they feel like getting on, they get on. If they don't feel like it, they don't. You know, if they want, they want to lay in bed and zoom into class, they can, you know, but they don't have to get up and get their materials. We just had a lot of examples that of things that weren't going well. So we had to put some assurance measures in place, um, quality assurance measures in place for our remote learners. So I think it's better, but I still think there's a there's a percentage of our remote learners who are maybe just going through the motions, but not really completely engaged in the curriculum. I, I don't think it's, it's poor um, execution on our remote teachers part. I think they're doing the best that they know how to do and, and to do, but everything that you identified attendance, engagement, um, rigorousness of the curriculum. I think all of those are a little bit of a concern with our remote learners. And, you know, just having that, um, having that handle, that working knowledge that you have of a student when your boots on the ground and your face to face is lost a little bit in the remote. And another piece that we haven't even approached in this, in this particular podcast that is just huge 
is the whole social and emotional aspect of, of the learner that is still at home, isolated from their peers, isolated from the interactions of, of their class and what that, what that isolation, you know, even though they're engaging remotely, you know, um, what that person to person in-person um, opportunity does over time. I don't think any of us know that for sure, but, but I know that I'm also in charge of social emotional learning for the district. And I know that we're getting um, increasing numbers of our counselors and our social workers and our behavior therapists are reporting more and more concern with some of their remote learners' um, mental health. Well, I, I feel like we could talk forever. You need to come to Kansas and we'll do that. Well, you know. <laughs> Just not during the tundra season when, uh, yeah. I've no. been there in calving season. <laughs> yes, she has. She's, she certainly, she's been on the ranch during calving season. I have been on the ranch. The calves are very cute. <laughs> yeah. I, I will have to believe you on that. <laughs> Um, I'll take your word for but, it. But <laughs> uh, this has been a great conversation, and I think it really, um, again, it, I don't, I don't think you have disproved my basic analysis, which is to reopen, it takes trust, it takes leadership, and uh, to Tangie's point, it takes some money too. Like, let's not forget that uh, you have repurposed some of your school funds. Not everybody had has that flexibility. So it's, there's, there's a lot that goes into school opening. And I think you've demonstrated just part of it. We didn't even get to the vaccine question. We didn't get to all kinds of things. But um, I, I kind of have decided that we can't go on for two hours. So we're, <laughs> we might have to come back and, and talk another time. One of the things I'd be really interested in talking with you about at some point is your plans for re reopening in the fall. And to the extent that there is a COVID slide, how you're thinking about that. And we may, we may put together an, another podcast on that. Well, and Karen, we're actually, um, our, our district team is, is meeting on that very thing. We're putting a new document together right now that our state is going to require of every school district on how we are going to address the COVID slide and what our reentry plans are looking like for next year. So, you know, that, that'd be a great opportunity to talk about kind of what goes into that. And, you know, we're seriously considering not offering any remote learning for next year. So it's, it's um, you know, we're, we're very serious about this on-site in school opportunities, you know, school to get back looking more like normal for kids as much as possible. And I also would love to speak to you about the vaccination opportunities, because when I said that COVID is kind of this three-pronged approach, the first prong was the re-entry plans and all the safety mitigation measures that go into the re-entry plans. The second prongs were the, the implementation and the contact tracing and the quarantining and keeping your positive cases out of your building as much as possible. And then the third prong is this vaccination process. And we are knee deep in vaccination process. Um, I'm running clinics in our um, school district every Monday and Thursday afternoons for an hour 
um, in conjunction with our local health department. And as of last night, we have vaccinated 478 so that's of like our staff 12, members. That's like a third? Is that right? Yeah. We're about we're just about at a third of our staff um, members. Yep. Oh. And um, that, several that more must to be go. Such a relief. That's a, that's exciting. It is. And on February 22nd, we start second dose. And so by spring break, we'll have a good third of our staff with both first and second dose. Okay. Oh, that's great. By the end of the school year, you probably have, what, nearly half of both? Or um, That is the goal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of staff members that do not want the vaccine. And, you know, we definitely honor that. Um, our Board of Education has been very, very um, lucrative in covering all COVID quarantine leave for our um, staff members, not requiring them to use their own leave. And so that'll be interesting how that plays out in the future of if you choose not to get vaccinated, because once uh, two weeks after your second dose of vaccination, you do not have to be quarantined if you've been around a positive case. So that will definitely have some you know, ramifications for our staff members. You said there were 89 cases in December and. 89 in January, I'm assuming, I shouldn't assume, like, is everybody okay? Yeah. 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 We haven't had any, um, we haven't had any deaths in our school district. We have had, obviously, in our community and, um, and that sort of thing, but we haven't had any directly tied to our school district. We're very, very thankful and blessed for that. Well, stay safe, get your vaccine. <laughs> And thank you so much, Deb. And we'll be back in touch. Um, okay. To talk to talk through the the reopening plans. Always good to hear from you, and so happy to meet you, Tangi. Thank you. you. Same to you, Deb. Thank you so much. wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times, a podcast of the Education Trust. If you're interested in learning more about the story of where, I hope you'll read How It's Being Done, published by Harvard Education Press in 2009. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast and the Wallace Foundation, which provides financial support. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast and composed its theme music. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time.